you turn in the beginning of your Bibles to the first book of the Bible in Genesis and chapter 11. Turn over a few pages and come to chapter 11. going to start reading in verse 27 and read into chapter 12 down to uh, verse 5. This is one place in the Bible where chapter divisions are a little bit misleading. If you read through the book of Genesis, there's a key phrase that turns up. This is the genealogy of. And uh, this is the genealogy, verse 27, of Terah. And Terah was the father of Abram. And I'm going to refer to Abram as Abraham, just like the New Testament does, and not get confused. It's the same man, God gave him another name, and it's Abraham. But here, he hasn't got his new name, he's got his birth name, which is Abram. So we'll read that, but then I shall refer to him as Abraham from this point on. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the native land, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, his wife, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. They came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy and infallible word and all the promises that it contains concerning your people and concerning our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would open our eyes to understand your plans, your purposes, and to rely upon your faithfulness, your goodness, your promises, your oaths, that we may be strong in our faith and in our love and in our hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. According to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, Abraham is one of the most important men who ever lived on the earth. Outside of the books of Genesis and the first few, chap first few books of the, uh, the, New, the Old Testament, he's mentioned in 27 other books of the Scriptures. In the New Testament, he looms large. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about sitting down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Romans chapter 4, we are told about Abraham who was justified by faith before he was circumcised. In Galatians chapter 3, we are reminded that the gospel was preached to Abraham. God said he would justify 
the Gentiles, the nations, by faith. In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's a direct quotation here from Genesis chapter 12 and the last part of verse 3. And of course, many of you will also know in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham takes up a large section of that chapter because he is portrayed for us as the man of faith, the man who trusted in God in the face of all obstacles. Now the specific promise we're going to look at this evening is in Genesis 12 and verse 3. The second part where he says and concludes these promises to Abraham and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that promise is a fundamental component part of God's plan of salvation. It's a fulcrum. It's one of the central events in the plan and purpose of God. There are defining moments in history. And this is one of those defining moments in the history of God's people. When you come to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, you find there a song of praise in Revelation chapter 5. The cry goes up, worthy is the lamb that was slain. By his blood we have been redeemed unto God. Men and people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is a fulfillment of this prophecy, this promise in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. This promise here is the reason for our very existence. It's why we are here. The gospel that was preached to Abraham has been preached to us and we have embraced Christ who is of the seed of Abraham. I want us to look at this verse in three ways. First of all, I want us to consider the Lord himself. God himself who spoke to Abraham because this is nothing less than a direct word of God how God spoke to Abraham we are not told specifically whether it was in a vision or some other means but we are told the Lord had said to Abraham and he made great promises to Abraham. You're told to leave Ur the Chaldeans, leave Haran, leave his country, leave his family, and make his way to an unknown land, to Canaan. But at that time he did not know where he was actually going. There are several promises. Let's just scan over them so we have the context before we look in detail at verse 3. First of all, God promises to make Abraham a great nation. A great nation. I will make you a great nation, and then I will bless you and make your name great. Here is one man, Abraham, and God says, you are going to become a great nation. He says also that he will bless Abraham, he will make his name great. While he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, he was just another inhabitant, just another man. But God said, no, I've singled you out, I've chosen you, I'm going to make your name great. That's why he's found throughout the Bible. Every Christian knows about Abraham. Some more than others, but we know about Abraham. He is mentioned again and again in the scriptures. His name is great, he's famous, he's important, and he will be a blessing. He'll experience, thirdly, opposition, enmity. Some will be ready to curse Abraham. But God says he will curse them who curse Abraham and bless those who bless him. And then we come to this promise in verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed simple words every one of you children here can understand what is being said here 
But notice, it is a universal promise. All the families of the earth shall be blessed in you, Abraham. It's unrestricted. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. How? It's through the deceit, through the seed, through the descendants of Abraham. Later on in his life, in chapter 22 and verse 18, we have this explained a little bit more fully. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And that is after Isaac has been born to Sarah. See, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because they are the seed of Abraham. If we're thinking biblically, then we are thinking this points us quite clearly that ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. We began our reading in verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. How does your New Testament begin? Can you remember? How does Matthew's Gospel begin? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How is he described? The son of David, the son of Abraham. So you see the hints are here. How much Abraham understood is a matter of speculation. I can't determine that at all. But the important thing is what what we understand. The picture that we see, that we are thinking then biblically. And stop for a moment and consider then who it is precisely who is making this promise at this particular time in human history. As I say, this is one of the defining moments in history. And it is because God speaks. And God speaks a specific promise to a specific man in a specific place. This is the one who spoke the world into being. The word of his power created the heavens and the earth. And everything that it contains. This is the one who blessed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He was their sole creator. There is no one else like this God. He has no rival. No one is his equal. The gods of the nations that developed after Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden are nothing in comparison with the supremacy of this great God who is the sole creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the one who commanded Adam and Eve's obedience. They disobeyed. He drove them out of the garden. Out of his presence. But he drove them out with a promise. And we must go back to that promise. A promise of a descendant. The seed of the woman. That will bruise the head of the serpent. It's a promise, it's the first promise of Jesus Christ. And the seed of the woman is now taken a step further. It's going to be the seed of Abraham and of Sarah. But also remind you that this same God is the one who judged the entire world before Abraham lived on the earth. In the days of Noah... Noah and his family alone were preserved. And God made a promise that he would never again flood the earth. And on the basis of that, then you have this promise. God is starting, as it were, again. But not quite again, because he's made a promise about the seed of the woman. Now he's going to take it further. This is the one also who brought the council of the nations to nothing. The Tower of Babel. Confounded the language of the builders. Scattered them over the face of the earth. And you have in chapter 10. All those nations that are descended then from Noah. And then this scattering. The Tower of Babel. This same sovereign Lord. This same God. 
is the one who redeemed Israel. A great nation. A great nation. He redeemed them out of Egypt. Brought them into the land of Canaan. Sent them prophets. Gave them kings. Then because of their disobedience they were sent into exile. Then he gathered a remnant in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. This is the same God who in his written word in the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham. There in Galatians chapter 3 it is very specific. The scripture, verse 8. The scripture, which is just another way of saying God spoke. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So you see the flow. It is the same God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who preached the gospel to Abraham all those years ago. He is the one who sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. The blessing of Abraham might rest upon his church. This God, then this sovereign Lord, here in Genesis 12 and verse 3, gives us a rock-solid, guilt-edged promise. And that promise stands forever. The plans of his heart, they stand to all generations. All nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of what God has promised this one man, Abraham, all those years ago. So what does this tell us about God? What do we learn here about our God? First of all, he has a definite plan for the salvation of sinners in this world. Not just Abraham's immediate descendants but for the whole Gentile nations all the world all the families of the earth he is very great because of that great promise he is greatly to be feared and reverenced he is very faithful you can rely entirely on his word he is very powerful how does he make himself known to Abraham eventually El Shaddai God Almighty all-powerful. There is nothing in history that's going to stand in his way and prevent this promise from coming to pass. The centuries may pass, but the promise still stands. We read in our Bibles of Sennacherib. We read in our Bibles of men like Nebuchadnezzar. We meet of the might of the Greek Empire. We meet of the might of the Roman Empire. But then we read in our Bibles that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. This is the one and this is the God who here is promising To bring salvation to all the families of the earth. This is the God who is proclaiming himself to be a saviour. The whole earth. Now that doesn't mean to say everyone will be saved. But the gospel comes from one God. The one true and living God. And he is the one who is speaking here. And he is the one who is proclaiming then this gospel to Abraham. He is the God who is to be trusted. The God who is to be obeyed. He is worthy. He is reliable. His word has stood firm. For something like if we put it in round figures. 3,750 years. That's a long time. 
If you live to be a hundred, you're old. Even in this generation where people are living longer lives, if you live to be a hundred, this is 3,750 years. Abraham lived approximately 1750 BC. And God has been watching over that word to perform it all those years. And if you would know the blessing, the blessing of Abraham, all the earth shall be blessed. What is that blessing? It is the blessing of salvation. It's the blessing of justifying, being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul speaks of it in Galatians chapter 3. That you have a right standing before God. You are accounted righteous before God like Abraham was, like David was. That's the thrust of Romans 4 and Romans 5. Abraham was justified by faith. He laid hold on God. He believed in him. He trusted in his word. But that blessing of justification, though it is promised to Abraham, it is not Abraham who can make you righteous. It is Christ and Christ alone through his death on the cross by which we may be made and accounted righteous. The Son of God who took our nature and took upon himself our sins so we preach Christ crucified it is those says Paul who are of faith who are blessed with believing Abraham God justifies the nations by faith he justifies sinners by faith you come to Christ as a sinner You can't come any other way. You are a sinner. You've broken God's laws and you've broken God's commandments. You cannot make yourself righteous in any way, shape or form. You cannot make your way perfect. It's impossible. You have to come with empty hands and say, Lord, save me, wash me, cleanse me. I cannot make myself right. I cannot make myself righteous. And that's what's being promised here. All these years ago. But having briefly considered the God who spoke to Abraham. I want to say two or three things about Abraham. Consider Abraham to whom the Lord spoke. Two things about him. You have to ask yourself, well, who was this man? Why did God give him this promise? Two things. First of all, he was a man who lived half of his life in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Ur was an ancient city. It had been around perhaps a thousand years before Abraham was born. You can go and see some of the the relics from there, from the, in the British Museum. It's fascinating. But Ur was a pagan city. Abraham had been brought up in paganism. The patron, patron god of Ur was Nanon, Nanar, the moon god. They worshipped the moon, they worshipped the sun, they worshipped the stars. They didn't worship the one true and living God. Ur was a great city in Mesopotamia. Ur of the Chaldees. There was a great temple tower there called a ziggurat. It was probably that. that they, the Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat. An attempt to reach up into heaven. It was a temple. But Nanar was the moon god. The chief god among the people who lived in Ur. And God deigns to speak to a man who is 75 years old. He lived to the age, do you know how old he was when he died? Any of you know? Any of your children know? Roughly. If I say he was nearly halfway, pretty much halfway through his life, can you do a bit of maths? 150. 150, alright. So he's about halfway through his life. He's 75 years old, he's been steeped. He's been trained, he's lived amongst idolaters. 
and God singles him out. God chooses him. One who had not known God, one who had not glorified God, one who was futile in his thoughts and darkened in his heart. But he chose Abraham and he chose his wife Sarah. He called Abraham. He reaches out to one who's been deceived by the false religions of this world. He speaks to him. He commands him. Get out. Get away from your family. And all this false religion to the land where I will show you. And the first thing that Abraham does when he gets into the land is to worship God. He builds an altar to the God who had called him out. And he worships. You see, that's the way God works. That's the way grace works. He chooses. He calls. He commands. He preaches the gospel. And turns us away from the darkness and the folly of false worship. In Abraham's case, idolatry. That's God's grace. And it's the only explanation. When we consider who Abraham was, he was a sinner. Steeped in idolatry. And yet God pulled him out of that. The second thing that we learn about Abraham is he was 75 years old and childless. It's one of the reasons why I read chapter 11. For we read in verse 30, Sarah was barren. She had no child. Here was a man, well into middle age, and a wife who was well beyond childbearing age. And another 25 years were going to go past before Sarah actually bore a child. The God who made this promise in you, in your seed, among your descendants... In you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And he said, well, how's that going to happen? You're 75. Your wife isn't far behind you in age, and she's barren. So how is that going to come about? And that was Abraham's state and condition. Yet God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm saying, when he's 99 years old, he still has no children. He's tried, well, it's, it's, it's going to be Eliezer, my, my servant. And then he takes Hagar, and Ishmael is born to him. But it's not Eliezer, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And Isaac is born to an old lady, Sarah. God's promise of a seed and a descendants is beyond the power of Abraham to produce. It's God's power. You remember when you come to the book of Exodus, the promise is already being fulfilled. Why does Pharaoh carry out a policy of genocide? Genocide means killing children, killing the male children in this case. Why? They become a great nation. They're a threat to Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob have multiplied. They become a great nation. Now you look at Abraham. You think here is a man who is steeped in idolatry. Here is a man who is old and his wife is barren. An unlikely candidate for carrying out God's promises. And God's plan of salvation. You see God is not limited by barren wombs by old age nor by the false religions that capture the minds and hearts of men and women he can deal with all those things and he does from a human point of view it looks a ridiculous promise it's impossible and Abraham had to grapple with that don't think that he just came to faith like that and believe these things He had to work it through. When the angel came to Abraham, 
Sarah overheard she was going to have a, have, a, have a son. What did she do? She was in her tent. And she said, hey, you must be joking. She laughed. She didn't believe it. And you can understand why she didn't believe it. I mean, she was well into her 90s. And ladies in their 90s don't have children. But God says, I'll overrule that. I will overrule it. You'll have a son. So here you are. 3,750 years ago, roughly, in round figures, and an old man and an old woman who's barren. And God says, in you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families on the earth. I'm going to declare, I'm going to bring about the salvation of many hundreds, thousands, millions of people from all the nations on the earth. And God is still fulfilling that promise after all these years. If you are a Christian here tonight and there are among us different nations, different tribes, different tongues. I haven't worked out because the population of the church here keeps changing. But, you know, I don't know how many languages it's possible for this congregation to speak. But there are quite a few. But you see, that's, we're a microcosm of what God is doing in this world. Abraham is an instrument in the hands of God for the nations are going to be blessed with salvation through Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now you couldn't make that up, could you? You couldn't make this story up. You couldn't make this promise up. And you couldn't make this story up about Abraham. 3,750 years ago, an old man, an old woman, childless, and yet God says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I say, if you are a Christian here tonight, then that promise has been fulfilled to you. And is being fulfilled. And will continue to be fulfilled until Christ returns in glory. I speak sometimes to people and they, they look at this Bible, they say, it's, it's all made up. It's not true. It's just a human document. It grieves me greatly when people dismiss the Bible like this because they clearly never read it and never understood this golden thread that runs through the entirety of the Scriptures. I'm not sure I would use it as a proof of the existence of God, but it is a plain declaration that there is one true living God who works out his plan of salvation in this world. And he does it by giving and reiterating and expanding upon promise, upon promise, upon promise, until the promised seed, Jesus Christ, is born of Mary in Bethlehem. I wonder if we sufficiently stand back and grasp the sheer wonder of this, the marvel of this. And we're no better than Abraham. What if we were left in our darkness and our ignorance, our sin, our uncleanness? That's the condition the Gentile nations were in. You read the opening chapter of Romans chapter 1. And the world is full of unrighteousness and ungodliness. There is no real knowledge of God. There is only sin and darkness and ignorance. And our day and age is no different. Those of you who were out on the streets yesterday preaching in the open air, you spoke to people who are in a similar darkness. And there may be some of you here this this evening, even though, even though you have been brought up in a Christian home, 
you may still not know this God and this Jesus. And the plan and purpose of God to save sinners. And look how long that promise has been in existence. It goes back to Abraham. It goes back even further to the promise given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But it takes on very specific, very specific, clear pattern when God speaks to Abraham and tells him, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What then, thirdly, are some of the implications of this? There are lots of applications that I could make. But before I finish tonight, I want to be very specific. But more generally, first of all, in the first place, I would reiterate what I said 10, 15 minutes ago. Every single one of you sitting here this evening need to hear this promise that God is making to Abraham. And you need to believe in that promise and to trust and be persuaded that God means what he says. His promises are trustworthy. His oaths that he swears to Abraham later on are absolutely true. He swears by himself because he can swear by no one greater. And the message that we are hearing this evening tells you salvation in Jesus Christ is by faith, by trusting, by listening to what God says, by being persuaded that it is true, and then casting yourself upon God who makes those promises, casting yourself upon Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of those promises. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the saviour of the world, all nations. And I'm setting you before him again this evening that you might believe on him, trust in him alone, because the only way you can be accounted right in the eyes of God, how else can you be saved? You cannot save yourself any more than Abraham and Sarah could produce a seed, a child. It was God, God in his power, God in his grace. And when a sinner is saved, it's God's power, it's God's grace, it's God's love, it's God's mercy. You must look then to Jesus Christ alone, the seed of Abraham, the saviour of the world, the Lamb of God, who John said takes away the sin of the world. And then if you are a Christian, then you have to marvel afresh at this long-standing promise. Nearly four millennia. 3,750 years. Here is the faithfulness of God. Here is the power of God. Here is the sovereign determination of God to save sinners from all nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation instead of the curse instead of the wrath of God instead of condemnation there is blessing the blessing to all who believe justified along with Abraham that's you that's me we'll sit down one day with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and feast together. That's the picture. That's the picture. Perhaps you think, oh, it's too long ago. I mean, you, you tell me I'm going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven? Yes. You said, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. It's what Jesus said. <laughs> you sit down with him, they'll be there. God made that promise. That promise then should stir us to praise, to thanksgiving, to wonder, and to awe. This is the great God who has made us and all things, 
The God who is gracious, who's reached out to us and reached down to us despite our sin, despite our sin and, our, and the wrath that comes because of that sin. But then I said I want to be very specific because if this promise has been given, and if this promise then is true, as a church, we should abound in great expectation as we pray. As we pray for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this day and age. Here is the seed of the woman. Here is the seed of Abraham. Now in the Old Testament... The picture is of the nations coming to Zion, coming to Jerusalem to worship God. But in the New Testament, when our Lord is about to ascend into heaven, he gives a command and he says, Going into the world, you are to make disciples of all what? Nations. I think that when our Lord gave that command to his disciples, he knew full well this promise of Abraham, given to Abraham. You are to go and make disciples of all nations. All authority is being given to me in heaven and earth. Now go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I have commanded to you. And we look at the promise. In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will bless, be blessed. We look at the command of Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And that doesn't always inform and instruct and control our prayers. We look at the problems. The scepticism that we see all around us. The apathy, the unbelief. The hostility. We look at the dwindling numbers. We hear of churches that close their doors. We hear of pastors and preachers who die. And there's no one to take their place. Churches are small. And we're tempted then to think small. And we say, well, God will save the odd one here and there. But is that the way we ought to think? When you read a promise like this, it ought to affect our prayers and our expectations. Does God approve of our small thoughts and our contracted thoughts and the limitations that we place because of what we see with our physical eyes instead of what we see and believe according to the promises of God? Has God's promise to Abraham changed? Has it been nullified in some way? I think to think small is really an evil. To contract our thoughts of God and of his word and of his promise is an evil. We need to be enlarged in our knowledge and enlarged in our love and our hope and our expectations. And like Abraham, not stagger at the promises through unbelief. He did at some stage. He learned. His faith increased. It grew. But the promise that is given to Abraham and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and continues to be fulfilled warrants great expectations and enlarged hearts on our part as we pray. God will be glorified among the nations of this world, among the peoples of this world. The love of God in Christ embraces all nations. All families of the earth. The gospel of his grace is to be preached to all. Why is it that we support and we pray for so many different churches and different nations week by week? There's a certain diary that we have. You can call it an intercessory diary if you wish. Pastor Jeremy draws it up and we go through and we pray. Why do we do that? And do we entertain great expectations with regard to the future of the gospel and the preachings who are sent out by these churches to proclaim the gospel? What are we doing if we contract our expectations? 
narrow down our prayers because of our doubts, because of our fears. We erect barriers. But if our hearts have been melted by the love of God in Christ and the sheer wonder of what he has done for us in Christ, then our hearts should be full of love, pity, compassion and zeal for the glory of Christ in this world. We have to pray, Lord, if I use the words of the hymn, enlarge our scanty thought, enlarge our little thoughts, fill us with faith, fill us with joy in believing. Lord, enlarge our narrowed hearts. Bless me, give me Abraham's faith. You will have heard of William Carey. William Carey was very anxious to take the gospel, leave this land and go, well, he ended up in the Indian subcontinent. He might have gone somewhere else, but I will not go through that story. But he preached a sermon. And no one is quite sure exactly what he said, but the gist of it that has come down to us is... From Isaiah he was preaching, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Earlier on, a few years before that, when he had mentioned going and taking the gospel, one of the older men said, sit down Mr. Carey, sit down, you're too enthusiastic. God will change the nations, God will bring the nations in, in his own way. And Carey didn't listen to what he was told on that day. He was determined to go and to preach the gospel. And he went to the Indian subcontinent and laboured there for seven years before he saw the first convert, Krishna Palm. We have his hymn in our hymn book. But see, he's preached that sermon to men and who had a narrowed vision, who had a shrunken view of God. And brethren, that is dangerous for the church if we have a shrunk view of God, a contracted view of God. One of our crying needs in the 21st century church is for enlarged hearts and great expectation, a confidence in God. Every few years there are great schemes to do this and that and the other to advance the kingdom of God. But it's a matter of faith and confidence in God's promises and the means that he has chosen to preach, to send preachers, to go and to make disciples. God already has his plan. We don't need to create another one. God has his plan. God has his purpose. And it's only by the abounding power of the Spirit of God as we grasp the promise of God to Abraham those many years ago and realize as we trace it through Scripture that it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ sent into this world and preached to the nations and is continuing and will continue to be fulfilled until the day that Jesus Christ comes in his power and glory when all his chosen ones will be gathered in and then they will sit down with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and feast in that kingdom brethren sisters we need to repeatedly remind ourselves of the God who has given us this promise and we need to lay hold of God and the, old, the language of some of our forefathers was to pull on the promises of God. What does that mean? It means to lay hold of God and remind God, not that he's forgotten, but to lay hold of God and plead with him on the basis of what he has promised. That's what they meant by pulling on the promises of God. Because all the promises of God are yes and are men in Christ. They will be, they must be fulfilled. So we need to have much greater expectations. 
in the light of this word. God is not small. His promises are not small. They embrace the entire universe. May God, by his Holy Spirit, so teach us, so constrain us, that we will have great expectation and that we will live to see those expectations being fulfilled here and throughout the nations of this world. Amen. Lord, we bow before you, acknowledging your greatness, your glory, your faithfulness, your power, the truthfulness of your promises. Forgive us, Lord, that we have doubted, we have been fearful, we have looked around us, and we have seen many foes, many forces set against us. And we have allowed those things to control our prayers and our expectations. But Lord, enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our understanding of your ways and of your promises. Help us to believe these things and to grow in our expectation and to grow in our fervency and our zeal for the honour and glory of Christ in this world. We thank you for your grace and for your goodness. We thank you that you've reached down and saved many of us here this evening already. But Lord, save everyone here who does not yet believe upon Christ and raise up men of God, to go and to preach this gospel and to make disciples of the nations of this world. Lord, fulfill your plans, fulfill your promises for your great name's sake. Amen. Amen.